I uh, want to begin before we get into the, the message this morning and, and this morning's scripture by uh, extending again, what is this? This, I have no idea what's going on. Just so you know, I'm not in on what, whatever's about to happen, I'm not in on. So, <laughs> is that it? You're just coming in to sit? No proclamations? Well, it actually is a good segue. Believe it or not, it's a good segue because I was about to extend um, my deep appreciation to everybody who was a part of the Living Nativity this weekend, also including King Herod over here, um, who, has, who has made an appearance. Um, I think it's starting to go to his head now. So, uh, but, uh, but, long time ago, Lori says, it's well past that. But, but in all seriousness, if, if you... We're here this weekend, and thank you everybody that came. You saw our, our, our terrifying King Herod and everybody who was a part of the Living Nativity, not just those who were involved in the outside, outside drama, but words to everybody who was inside doing hospitality, who helped set up and, and do things beforehand, who stayed after last night. We had to do a lot of teardown because the weather was coming, and we knew it was coming, and we're very thankful the way that the timing for the, uh, for the Nativity played out. So as far as us getting through it before the weather turned, turned bad. So thank you to everybody who, who was a part of that. Um, but I do want, what's that? Yeah, and the food, everything, everybody that was a part of it, front to back. But I do want to, I always do this, and, and that is to, to recognize Julie's here. Joe's, Joe will be here in the next service. But Joe and Julie McNaughton, who really are the, the catalysts for all of that, who make sure Julie loses sleep the week before, making sure everything's together. And also Miss Ethel, who's, who's a part of the setup and who does so much. So to Joe and to Julie. And to... Uh, and Ethel, but I also want to extend a thank you beyond just Joe and Julie. I don't do this enough, but, but it, the, the thought crossed my mind this week is to recognize um, kind of part of that team that, that I don't recognize enough, and that's not just Joe and Julie, but to recognize their kids, Jay, Ella, and Wyatt, because they're a part of that too. And, you know, being a preacher's kid, which I'm, you know, was a preacher's kid, and well, still am, I guess, and certainly raising kids, I know the way that, that the kids kind of get pulled into the work of, of mom and dad, and they do it with a wonderful attitude, a wonderful joy about them. And I pulled out one night this week, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday night, something here at the church, it was 9 o'clock, all the lights were on, and I pulled in wondering what was going on, and, and Joe was there setting up with Wyatt. And last night after, Jay's running around, pulling all the sets in with some of the other youth, and Ella's busy doing stuff. And, and so a lot of times we recognize mom and dad, and we don't recognize the kids. So when you see those, those, those young adults, really not kids, those young adults, um, let them know you appreciate their work too, because they're as much a part of that as, as their parents are. So what's that? Well, a lot of people do. Yeah, a lot of people do a lot. John Hamilton and others, you're right. There's, there, and that's the problem, the challenge with that is there's really a lot of people to name. And I know Julie would tell you that. There's a lot of hands that are involved in this. And so all of you, you know, thank you for that. But it was a wonderful weekend. People have asked, how many? We know we had well over 1,000 people come through in two days. So 
We know we had about as many as we can handle in two days as far as capacity. And so it was really great. So thank you. It was a wonderful joy and, and a wonderful way that, that we can tell that story and celebrate the story. And that's really what we're doing. We're doing through all of, we always do an Advent. We celebrate the story of Christ's birth, but we, 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 we read it afresh, I pray, every year so that we can see what new insights God wants to give us. And, and this, this Advent season, as I shared with you last week, I'm, I'm drawing upon favorite songs of the season, songs of Christmas, as we use them as, as kind of a catalyst into the scriptures and into a deeper examination of God's word and its application for our lives. And, and last week it was, uh, it was a secular, kind of more modern Christmas song, last Christmas. But this morning... Uh, we go back to one of our traditionals. We've sung a, a number of the traditional hymns this morning. And um, the one that I want to kind of use as a, a launching point, if you will, this morning is O Come All Ye Faithful, one of our most beloved and, and cherished of our Christmas hymns. It was written in the 18th century, most often ascribed to John Francis Wade, who was a Catholic layman. Uh, and he, he wrote the hymn uh, in Latin. Um, and so the, the title in Latin is Adelis, um, Adelis uh, Fidelis, uh, I'm sorry, Adeste Fidelis, which means um, all ye faithful. And so it began to first disseminate in the Latin form, uh, Portugal, and then into England. And in England, it was picked up and read by a man by the name of Frederick Oakley, who in 1841 uh, translated it into English. And added those words, O come. So it became, O come, all ye faithful. And that's the hymn that, that we know. And, and that's the hymn that we love. It's an invitation to come and to be present at the birth of Christ. To experience the presence of Christ. This, this joyful invitation to come and, and to know and to experience the presence of this, um, of this Savior. But, but what is interesting is really the heart of the, the catalyst for that kind of an expression. That kind of an invitation connects us to the ones who received the invitation in the Christmas story. The ones who are invited joyfully and in the presence of the angels to, to come and to see this newborn child. And those, of course, are the shepherds. That's, that's their, their unique experience in the story of Christ. In fact, one of the, the verses in O Come All Ye Faithful that, that we almost never sing is verse 4. And this is how it, it is sung. It says, See how the shepherds summon to his cradle, leaving their flocks, draw nigh to gaze. We too will thither bend our joyful footsteps. Come, let us adore him. Now, I will confess to you, I read that, I read that a number of times. I read it this morning, the first service, and it dawned on me. I had no idea what thither even meant. Um, it means to draw near, to come toward or for, toward something. Somebody looked it up on Google while I was preaching. And, um, <laughs> but, but here's the interesting thing. In the hymnal, it's, it, there's an asterisk next to that verse. And, that, and it says at the bottom, it says, may be omitted, which is probably why we don't usually sing it. But, but I think in some ways uh, that's unfortunate because really the... The experience of the shepherds is, is what we draw upon when we, when we imagine that joyful and, and um, angelic and majestic invitation because they're the ones who received it. And so I want to spend a few moments this morning 
in our time together thinking about the experience of the shepherds and their inclusion in the story. Before we do that, though, I want to turn to Luke chapter 2 and read the section of, of the infancy narratives, the stories of the birth of Christ, that, um, that include the shepherds. So that's found again in Luke chapter 2. We'll pick it up at verse 8. This is what we read. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak your story into our hearts anew. That we would experience the joy of faith, the joy of the birth of Christ, the joy of the invitation you give us, and we draw close to you. This is our prayer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, you become kind of tuned in when you're, you're doing a sermon like this and, and, and a series like this, and specifically as I started to um, focus in on, on the shepherds. And, and you become really attuned to the, to, to the central part they play uh, in, the, in the story of the birth of Christ. I mean, we know they're there. But I've, I've noticed as we've sung our hymns and our songs this morning, I've just been even more aware of how frequently we refer to the shepherd's part in the story. There aren't a lot of parts, if you will. And so the fact that they're there and, and they're part of any time you have a, a, um, a nativity scene, Anytime you have a living nativity, a drama of some sort, the shepherds are always part of the story. And if you really stop to think about it, and you start to really think about all the participants in the story, I think the shepherds become the most perplexing. I think they're the most interesting, but um, at least at a surface level, most um, challenging inclusion into the story. And, And this is what I mean by that is if you think about the participants, everybody has a role to play that is in somewhat um, easy to, to identify. They have a reason for being there, if you will. Uh, start with the, the very central figures, Mary and Joseph. Well, of course, they're central to the story. It was essential for, for, for there to be a Mary and Joseph because God, as we talked about last week, chose to come in the most vulnerable and needy means possible to be born as a, as a newborn, as a child. So there had to be a mother and father to nurture, to care, to raise, to love this child. So, of course, they're an obvious central part of the story. Moving toward the later events in the, the, those first years of, of the life of Christ, we have the, the wise men. Well, of, of course, they have a significant role to play, too. might not be quite as obvious, but if you remember that they brought the three gifts 
to the child. That's why we always talk about three wise men. It's, as I've told you before, there's actually no, no, we don't know how many wise men can, but we know they brought three gifts. And those gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I was, if you came to the Living Nativity, you know that one of the part, the part I get to play is I'm, I kind of narrate the last scene. And that's the last scene of the, of the uh, Nativity is the wise men bringing these gifts to the, to the now um, older Christ child. And, and I was in this scene this year. Um, Owen Schultes was our, our Christ um, toddler. He's a little over toddler age, but he did a wonderful job. And if you came, what's that? Stole the show. He's a, he's a little ham, he is. And uh, he, took, he took those gifts. But over and over, I probably 30 times over the last few days, he would receive these gifts. He would, he would take these gifts and he'd place them on the table. And these were the gifts the wise men brought. And one of the things that I think is so significant about that is we remember what would be the next step in the life of this young family. And that was a flight to Egypt. Remember, they had to get Jesus away from from Herod, who was the slaughter of the innocents. We don't know, but it makes sense that those gifts were incredibly valuable for a family that was about to be on the run, for a family that was trying to, 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 to survive. So, so those gifts, we don't know how Mary and Joseph used them, but we can see how they would have been very, very significant. Later, the next step, you, you were introduced to Simeon and Anna in the temple, Anna the prophet, and, and Simeon, the righteous and holy man, who, who speak a blessing over Jesus. And, and that, that is not something to be taken lightly. God opens their eyes and they, they reveal to who this child is. So they all have something to add, something to give to the story, except the shepherds. The shepherds have nothing to, to bring. In fact, if you were trying to give this story credibility, you'd never include them. Because they're at the bottom rung of... of a hierarchy of a societal structure. They're, they're the bottom. Nobody grew up dreaming about being a shepherd. Uh, they're, they're still present in the Holy Land today. They're Bedouin communities. They would move from place to place just trying to find um, ground for their flocks to, to feed because, as I've joked before, and those of you that have been to the Middle East and specifically to Israel know, you know, it's a lot of rocks and dirt. You know, you've got to find places. And that was their life, and that was... That was their, their existence, if you will. And so their inclusion is in some ways a little perplexing. What exactly do they add to the story? Why? Why are they part of it? And, of course, it's no mistake that they're a part of it. And I think there's some valuable lessons that we can learn from the shepherds and, and their, their role in this story of, of the birth of Christ. The first thing that we learn is that God invites them to this experience, I think because God knows that they will both listen and they will look. They will listen and they will look. Let me start with what I mean by that they will listen. That the shepherds would not approach this invitation with the skepticism that God knew many others would. Now, why would you be skeptical about this kind of a thing? Well, it's very, very simple. This is not the way the story was supposed to go. This is not what they expected in the coming of their Messiah. And this was an absurd way for God to enter human history. For all the reasons we've talked about, it was absolutely absurd for God to come in such a vulnerable and needy way. I believe that there are many that would have heard this invitation that would have 
dismissed it because that's not the way it's supposed to go. That's, that's not the way that, that, that God works. And there's a real danger here that we run into that I think we have to learn from. And that is that sometimes when we think we have all the answers, we don't listen to other voices. When we think we know the way things are supposed to go, we tune out those who would challenge what we have already supposed to be truth. And I think there were many who would have heard this, religious leaders specifically, that would have tuned out even the voice of God because that's not the way the story is supposed to go. There's a, there's a song from a contemporary Christian group a number of years ago. They're not together anymore, but it was one of my favorite groups. And the, and the, the name of the group is For Him. And they, they sing one of, another one of my favorite Christmas songs called, um, and the title is, What a Strange Way to Save the World. And, and if you're familiar with the song, and I see a few nods, it's sung from the perspective of Joseph. But, but the, the chorus of it says, I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say, but this is such a strange way to save the world. And it was. But the shepherds listen because there's a danger when we don't. And, and we fall into the trap, a lot of us, in so many ways. I, I remember I was in the sixth grade. I was a student at Long Branch Sixth grade center in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, they were putting together, the school was putting together, uh, they had brain bowls in Jacksonville. I'm sure they have them other places too. Um, academic competitions, teams of five against five. I remember at the high school level, there was one of the like, local television stations used to broadcast these, these competitions. And so our, they were doing one for the sixth grades. Um, students around the, the city of Jacksonville. And so our team, our school was putting a team together, so we got to audition to be on the Brain Bowl team. And I'll never forget the day that they came over the loudspeaker and they announced the Brain Bowl team. And I was announced as the captain of the Brain Bowl team. And I was very excited. It was very, you know, it was kind of a cool moment to have your name read and everybody recognize you. And so I was the team. So for weeks we practiced and prepared for this competition. And I'll never forget the day of the competition. We're sitting in this room... We were at a high school, and I am competing against whatever school we were up against. And, and on our table of five, I was in the middle. So two on my right, two on my left. And any time we had a group, like a team question, I was the one that answered for the team. Now, that's important because this specific question that I remember was a math question. Don't remember the specifics of it, but it was, a, you know, it was something you had, to, you had to know the formula to, to com- compute the answer. And so the question comes, and I write it down, and, and I'm certain I know the formula to answer this question. So I'm working it out. You have like 30 seconds. The classmate to my left turns to me and says, the answer is 72. And I'm looking at mine like, it can't be 72. That's not the way the formula works. The young lady to my right turns to me and says, the answer is 72. And I said, it can't be 72. That's not the way the formula works. And I knew I had the formula. And you know where this is going. (laughs) And so the time to gave the answer, he said 72. She said 72. Somebody else may have said 72. And I answered 53. And the answer was 72. (laughs) It was a 10-point question. We lost that competition, I kid you not, by 10 points. And don't think I have ever forgotten that experience. But here's the lesson. I was so certain I knew the way that it was supposed to go, I tuned out the voices that challenged what I already assumed to be right. 
I challenged, I wouldn't hear the voices that challenged what I had assumed to be right. That was an insignificant, it was a shaping experience. I shouldn't say it's insignificant, but it pales in comparison to what I'm talking about. Why shepherds? Because they weren't going to assume anything about the way God's supposed to work. They came humbly and openly. Religious leaders would have, would have thought, no, God, that's not the way you do it. The social elite would have said, no, that's not a place I'm going. The busy and successful would have said, ah, I'm a little busy. Who knows what the reasons may have been. But the shepherds were going to listen. They were not going to dismiss the invitation. And then they were going to respond. They were went, and it says, after the angels left, they said, let us go find the child. Let us go find what we have been invited to receive. They were willing to listen. They were willing to look. They were willing to be open to this crazy, unexplainable, strange way that God was going to work. That's why the shepherds. Why else, too? Well, because the shepherds remind us of a truth that will be reiterated throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus. And that is this. Everybody's invited to the party. Everybody is invited to the party. This is a major theme of Luke, who would then go on to write Acts. This, this understanding, the inclusive nature of God's invitation. Everybody gets invited to the party. Because again, the shepherds were at the bottom of, the, of, of the, the ladder. They're bottom of, of the hierarchy, if you will. They had very little value, very little respect, very little esteem. And yet they're the very ones that get the only, besides Mary and Joseph, the only personal invitation to the party. Remember, the, the, the wise men followed the star. Anna and Simeon, they had their, it revealed to them. But, but the shepherds, they, they get an invitation. God doesn't care about our hierarchy. You know, I, I was thinking about this last night. I was sitting with a computer in the office, this hierarchy and this way that we, that we live. And, and I started thinking about juji fruits. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Juji fruits. The... the the, the candy, the fruit-flavored candy. There are five flavors of juji fruits, five colors. And in order of um, value and importance, at the top of the juji fruit hierarchy are red. Red's at the top. That's the best flavor. Look, you can disagree with me. It's fine. You'll be wrong, but you can disagree with me. Um, red's at the top. Then there's orange. Orange is number two. Black is number three. Oh, stop it. Black's number three. My list. Yellow is number four. Green is at the bottom. Green is at the bottom. Now, here's what I was thinking about. When I'm eating a box, I'm saying, when I'm having a piece or two of Juji Fruits, if I look in the top and I see green, you know what I do? Shake the box. Right. Right. You shake the box. Why? Because you want whatever color. You want them at the bottom. Green deserves to be at the bottom so that when I get to the end, that's all that's left and I can give it to somebody else. <laughs> that's a silly way that we create a hierarchy. Okay, I know. Here's, here's what you've got to understand. This is the truth of the gospel. In God's hierarchy, nobody's at the bottom. Nobody, God's not shaking that box for anybody. We all have value in the eyes of God, even the lowly shepherds who get invited to the party. And that's, that's what God does. God, in, in, in many ways, he turns the hierarchy upside down, and he says those who are at the bottom, they get the first invitations. This gets repeated throughout the Gospels. Those who get dismissed 
get invited. Now, that's good news for all of us, but I also want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you a little bit deeper because Juji Fruits are a, a silly example of a, of a deeper truth because we may not admit it. In fact, you probably wouldn't. I'd be hesitant to admit it, to say that, that we have a hierarchy in our world, that we value some people over others, that there's groups of people maybe... Um, by, by social status, maybe by ethnicity, I don't know, that, that we either consciously or, or unconsciously um, place at the bottom of our values or of our hierarchy. And I, wanted, I want you to know this, that if the story of Jesus tells us anything, that whoever that is for you, whoever it is for me, they're the first that would receive the invitation. They're the first that would be invited. And I say that to humble us, to humble me. You know, a lot of times we tend to put ourselves at the first. I've told you before that, that I had a pastor who I respected a lot that used to say all the time that he wanted to build a church that if Christ came today, it would be the place that Jesus would come. And I thought, gosh, I don't know. He used to say it would be the first place Jesus would come. I'm like, I don't think that's where the Gospels work. Jesus never went to the places he expected to be first. He went to places nobody expected him to be, among the outcasts and the forgotten and the afflicted. So, so it challenges us to remember the good news is that we are invited to the party. That's, that's one of the takeaways. But the challenging takeaway is so is everybody else. And we need to remember that and we need to live that. So, so that's what we learn from the shepherds. And then, of course, there is also this truth. And that is... The shepherds brought the very best gift they could bring to the child. Now, I know that seems like I contradicted myself because I said earlier they had nothing to give. And that totally what, that really wasn't true. They had nothing tangible. They didn't have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They didn't have this religious authority to offer a blessing. They came very much empty-handed. But they brought themselves. They brought the one thing that God treasures and values and desires more than anything else for all of us. They brought their heart. They brought themselves to be open to experience this powerful and profound revelation of the incarnation of God, of God present, of God inviting them really into a much, much more than just a momentary experience, but a lifelong relationship. Oh, come all ye faithful. They came learning to be faithful. To, to, to bring themselves. It, there's there's a, a, a Victorian um, poem that says, What shall I give, poor as I am? If I was a shepherd, I'd give a lamb. If I was a wise man, I'd do my part. But such as I am, I give him my heart. That's what we are invited to give. And so they come, they respond and they receive. They, they come and, and they are forever changed. It is a really a model and an example of what a journey of faith looks like. We are all given an invitation. We're all invited to come and to receive this gift that God gives. But the challenge for us, the call for us, is to hear and to respond. They responded. They went and they investigated. They went and saw and they believed. They testified. 
I guarantee the rest of their lives they testified to what they had seen and the experience God had invited them into. And that is what changed them. Remember the hymn, Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. What makes us joyful and triumphant? I didn't read verse 20, but if you go on and read verse 20, you find out that they were exceedingly joyful because they experienced the presence of Christ. That's what we're invited to. The presence of Christ changes us. It changes our stories. It changes our narratives for the rest of our lives. When we listen, when we look, and when we come open to receive. That's, that's the gift of Christmas. That's the, the heart of Christmas is this invitation God gives us. I pray that you and me will humbly receive that invitation. And that we will open our hearts and we will give the most treasured gift that we have to offer this Christmas ourselves in a relationship, to be open to a relationship with a God who has given himself for us. We love because he first loved us, brothers and sisters. Christmas is a story of love. And I pray your hearts are open to receive it. Amen? Amen. All right, friends, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we do thank you for the invitation that you give us, the lesson we learned through those shepherds. And the reminder of, of who you are and who you value, which is all people, each of us. Help us to live into that, to love as you love and to receive the faith that you've invited us into. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.